The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novos Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovosOrdoWatch.org. That's NovosOrdoWatch.org. Soder, and this evening, as always, I have the great privilege of sharing the next oh, hour and a half or so with Father Anthony Chicada, Assistant Pastor of St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio, and author of the book Work of Human Hands. Father, thanks for being back again with us for another continuation of the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, Father, uh, it's been about a month since we did our last show, and uh, going back, kind of taking a little survey of the shows that we've done in the past, I, I would say this this show sort of constitutes a break uh, in the direction that we've gone with the show. Um, in the past, we've we, we've sort of talked about the groundwork, the framework, the layout, you know, the planning, and everything like that, and we've discussed names and places and dates and documents and all this stuff. And now we're going to discuss tonight really the theology of the Mass, and, and take a very deep look into what the changes actually resulted in. Now, Father, uh, you have given the principal thesis in your book, uh, which is that the Mass of Paul VI, A, destroys Catholic doctrine in the minds of the faithful, and in particular, Catholic doctrine concerning the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, the priesthood, and the real presence, and B, it permits or prescribes grave irreverence. So, you know, Let's move beyond the point of laying the groundwork for the changes, and we're going to take a forensic look here at the result of this groundwork. And we're going to begin by looking at the revised nature of the structure of the Mass itself. And we're going to look and lay out many of the changes in the rite of Paul VI, which suppressed prayers or mystical rites introduced to the Mass in the Middle Ages. So let's start off, Father, with the, the element of the Mass known as the introductory rites. That's the chapter that we're in, chapter 8. And uh, I wanted to start off with the first page, the first paragraph, where you relay a bit of a story about your experience with Father Chuck. Who's Father Chuck? (laughs) He was a a priest. I still don't know his last name. In the Diocese of Rochester, New York. Rochester in the 70s, 80s, and I think right up until recently, had the... Uh, reputation in the post-Vatican II church of being one of the the wildest dioceses in the United States, theologically and um, liturgically. I offered Mass at a church up in Rochester that we had established called Holy Name of Mary, and uh, I would travel up there on, on weekends. At the same time, I had just begun work on the book that would become uh, Work of Human Hands. What I decided to do is that since I had not uh, assisted at 
an actual celebration of the new Mass for a long, long time, I decided that I would sample uh, how the new Mass is celebrated in different churches in Rochester. This is a way of um, passing time until uh, my train would come and take me off to the next Mass Center. So one day uh, we went to a church, uh, downtown church, beautiful gothic-style church to watch the Mass. And there was a, a band of some kind in, in the sanctuary with uh, uh, percussion and, and with uh, different instruments. And uh, the Mass started up with a, a, a peppy entrance song that sounded uh, basically like uh, pop music. The priest came down the aisle and uh, he went into the sanctuary, and he had a, a handheld microphone. And he greeted the congregation by saying, Good morning, faithful. And they responded, Good morning, Father Chuck. Well, that was my <laughs> first experience with Father Chuck, and he actually uh, took his portable microphone and went down the aisle to ask people different things. It was like uh, almost like a, a warm-up to a show on television. It was really astounding to, uh, to see something like this. And he was laughing and, and joking, and he spotted me in the back of the church, uh, wearing a clerical collar, of course, and uh, he pointed to me, and he said, it's nice to see that we have a, a nice young deacon here in the back of the church. Let's give him a round of applause. <laughs> So that is how I was greeted at this, this sample celebration of the new Mass. And I was actually secretly hoping that he would invite me up to say a few words <laughs> to the congregation, because I'm, I'm sure I could have thought of something that they really would not have expected. <laughs> that, was, that was the Father Chicada um, uh, introductory rite, right? Uh, yes, it would have been a different sort of, of introductory rite, I'm afraid. <laughs> the, the Father Chuck, I uh, joke about him a little bit in the book, but actually he is a type in the Novus Ordo Church, uh, a priest of, of that generation, the 60s, 70s, 80s generation, was very much taken in by the changes and had this very uh, casual, loosey-goosey way of celebrating Mass. And and it's it's uh, a person that I discovered really was was sort of a, a type. There are many of Father Chucks in the Post Vatican II Church, so I made him up uh, almost a symbolic character in my book. <laughs> well, I think I think most of us have had an experience with our Father Chucks, and uh, I mean I know I certainly have. So, Father, let's let's jump into the chapter here on. The, the new introductory rites. Can you give us a definition of what the introductory rites are? Well, we can give you a, a descriptive definition. There are the rites in the Novus Ordo that uh, start with the song, the entrance song at the beginning of the, uh, the Mass, and that uh, end with the uh, recitation of the prayer of the day. This was a uh, replacement for... Uh, the prayers at the foot of the altar, uh, the introit, and uh, the different prayers in the traditional Mass that got you up to uh, right before the epistle. So the idea was that the introductory rites of the new Mass 
are a replacement for that. And I just kind of uh, add, by the way, that in discussions of the differences between the traditional Mass and the Novus Ordo, you generally tend not to see a discussion of the introductory rites of the Novus Ordo. Uh, I think primarily because there's, they're so short. They're so short, mm-hmm. but actually there's uh, a lot in there and a lot behind these rites that reflect the underlying theology of the Novus Ordo. Mm-hmm. Well, in scanning through the first couple of pages, um, and, and kind of going back over because I read it a while back now, uh, I stumbled upon this quote from the General Instruction of the Roman Missal. And for our listeners, we did practically an entire show on, on what the General Instruction was uh, four or five months ago now. It's been a while back, but you can go back and listen to that show if you want to get the flavor of it. Anyway, this is a quote from it from 1969, talking about... Um, what the introductory rites were supposed to do and, and what, the, what the aim of the revision was. And it says, quote, The faithful coming together establish communion among themselves and dispose themselves for properly hearing the word of God and worthily celebrating the Eucharist, unquote. So, Father, what's the problem with this statement? Well, it turns everything on its head because the purpose of what we could call the introductory rites in the traditional Mass was to express one's um, loneliness before Almighty God and to pray uh, to God for uh, forgiveness of one's sins uh, in order to uh, worship Him uh, properly. Hmm. Here what you have is instead of the introductory rites being directed toward Almighty God, they're directed toward establishing communion with each other. So it, 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 it flips things where we could say before the introductory rites in the old mass were vertical and God-directed, now they are man-centered. And uh, you, can, uh, you see that not only in the underlying commentaries on these rites, but also in the, the direction in which they face. The uh, priest at the traditional mass faces the altar, faces God, and uh, Father Chuck, once the band has finished, uh, he faces the congregation. So it's this, this, this uh, shift, this whole shift, where everything is turned over, turned on its head. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I remember years ago when I was going through my Novus Ordo prep for First Holy Communion, I remember that, that, that point being stressed that you, know, you must really establish a common union with your, you know, your fellow Christians at the Mass to worthily receive the bread of the Lord. I remember that, that statement, and so it, you know, it doesn't surprise me that that was probably born out of statements like this, where this idea that uh, you, know, you, you have to establish communion for the Mass to be valid practically. Well, they have a, you could almost say there's a whole theology in the Novus Ordo uh, parishes, at least in suburban America, this idea of the theology of gathering, that you have to gather before the Mass. So in uh, some of the newer churches, the newer suburban churches, uh, that you see they have this this giant um, area outside the uh, body of what we would call the nave of the church itself. The idea is that you hang around in there and you socialize with people uh, until the Mass is about to begin, and then everyone uh, goes in because you're, you have a better idea of establishing community with people if you have these different conversations. 
Mm-hmm. It was before the idea with the traditional mass is that you would go uh, into the church, you would um, uh, 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 say prayers to the Blessed Sacrament. So it's, <laughs> it's a, a, a complete shift. In the same area of the book, I stumbled across another statement by a, a, a Father Peter Coughlin. Now, Father Peter Coughlin was, was part of the Concilium, which we, we've also talked about at great length. And uh, he had this idea of this, this, this psychological and communitarian aspect to the Mass. And this commentary, when he, he made the statement in a study of his, and he said, uh, quote, The faithful who assemble should stir up their sense of community with all believers. The entrance song arouses everybody's enthusiasm and fosters unanimity. Then the celebrant's greeting, the Kyrie and the Gloria, enliven faith in the Lord's presence among the assembly. Unquote. Well, Father, we have a, we have a whole litany of, of modernist buzzwords there, don't we? Well, we do, and it's all predicated on the idea of um, uh, religion as experience, that, um, we, uh, that the Holy Spirit is working, that God is uh, truly working when you have some sort of an emotional communitarian experience. So mm-hmm. that's the, the the whole idea behind it. You go from the idea of the supernatural order to the natural order. And that's exactly the problem with modernism, or one of the problems, that there's there's no distinction between the natural order and the supernatural order. So the whole uh, theology um, behind the new Mass, is, as you see time and time again, is is based on... Uh, this false understanding of religion and, and religious experience, and Coughlin was a—he uh, was an, a, a, an important man, an assistant to uh, Bugnini in uh, Concilium, and he actually worked on the formulation of the Ordo Missae itself. In other words, the, the, the uh, what we would call the ordinary of the Mass itself when it came to the Novus Ordo. So these were the kind of ideas that these these people had, and that's why they produced what they did. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, the next logical step here is to move into uh, you know the removal or the disappearance of the introit antiphons, and and I wanted to talk a little bit about this because perhaps you know some of our listeners may be freshly leaving the Novus Ordo, particularly in the wake of everything we're seeing in this Bergolian nightmare. And they may not know what this means. They may not be familiar with the term. And I was hoping you could explain a little bit about what the introit is and some of its history. Okay, well, the, the meaning of the word uh, uh, introit is entrance. So it's the, the uh, entrance antiphon that uh, was sung or is supposed to be sung as the clergy uh, goes to the altar at uh, high mass. So the, the uh, introit had a... Uh, a verse uh, from a song, or from a psalm, that uh, was sung. Then uh, another verse from the psalm, a psalm that was sung in a little, little more simply, uh, in, a, in a psalm tone. And then the glory be to the Father, sung in a simple psalm tone. And then the ornate antiphon was uh, repeated again. So this this was... The, was called the uh, introit. In the traditional mass, there's uh, a series of these that are disposed and set out over the whole uh, liturgical year uh, that uh, correspond to the feast, and their arrangement is actually something that is uh, very ancient 
in uh, the church. This this goes back at least to the um, in the Roman rite goes uh, back at least to the eighth uh, and ninth century. So uh, this was a characteristic part of the um, traditional mass, and it's something that uh, was prescribed in accordance with uh, the feast day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. In this chapter, you also talk about really sort of the you know, the roadmap to its its departure from the mass. And and uh, one of the things you say, Father, is that it's essentially like everything else has become optional, or as translation mm-hmm. we would say, not necessary. Um, how did it, how did it lead up to becoming optional, and who were the people behind making it optional, and then ultimately, you know, responsible for its disappearance? Well, the. Um well, this was part of the uh, work of Concilium. There's a, a, a subsection of Concilium that was uh, occupied with this. The idea is that, well, we have to build up the uh, spirit of the assembled congregation for this communitarian rite. And we're sure not going to be able to do this uh, by having the choir sing um, an antiphon in Gregorian chant. So what we will do instead is we can we will allow uh, you to substitute a um, some sort of a, a song that the local pastor or the local organist uh, selects to replace the song, and so he he may replace it with anything he thinks that uh, that is appropriate. And so uh, in I was a church organist myself, and and. What happened in most churches is you would sing a hymn, or you would sing a what is called a, a, a uh, some sort of a, a responsorial psalm, where you'd have a uh, um, sort of a uh, hammy cantor singing into a microphone at the front of the church and waving his arms a little bit. Uh, and uh, the whole idea of the connection between this and the history of the church was um, was gone. And you could use whatever you want. So in Father Chuck's church, you had a um, little band in the front of the church with the, the guitars and uh, percussion and the keyboard singing into microphones doing a sort of a pop type of ditty. So this is mm-hmm. what replaced the intro. But the idea, again, is this naturalistic idea that um, the purpose of the introductory rites is to get uh, build this, this community experience. Your chant introit can't do that, so you can get the um, uh, this little band in the sanctuary to do it. Mm. Uh, this sort of goes back to what we've been harping on since show one was the the effects of this deregulation, as you call it, Father, in your book, and and how uh, really deregulation was the vehicle to really destroy the mass because it because it gave the power to the bishops' conferences to determine really whatever whatever they wanted to do. And you described in the book that the new mass retained a, um, um, a quote, midget introit antiphon, unquote, which was in practice overrun by, by the bishops' conferences uh, by the decision to give the liberty to congregations to use, and I like this quote, other sacred song uh, at the beginning oh, yeah. of mass, which, which, of course, as we know, is all silly, stupid, sappy praise and worship music. How was this ultimately solidified? Was it just put into practice really as the replacement of the introit antiphon? Uh, yes, because the only t- time the introit antiphon would be done would be when you had, in effect, no musician. 
in the church who is able to sing a sappy song. Then the rubrics prescribe that the priest read the text of the intro to But uh, apart from that, it um, it was not used, and uh, instead you had um, basically whatever sort of song the parish liturgy committee or the pastor wanted uh, at that point. So it ended up uh, being practically speaking, abolished, because people could not chime in and sing it, and uh, you couldn't build up your communitarian spirit with it. Mm-hmm. Well, let's move on to this meet-and-greet theology. We talked about this in the opening part of the program here, um, and I think we've all experienced this. I mean, I know I certainly have over the years, and most people listening to the program, uh, they have as well. When they were stuck in the Novus Ordo, or those who may still be there, are certainly can say, oh, yeah, 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 I see that. Uh, let's talk about this whole meet and greet aspect of the new mass, Father. How would how would you you know really hit the nail on the head when it comes to this meet and greet aspect of the new mass? Well, the idea there is uh, consonant with the general idea for the um, initial rites of the mass that you're supposed to build up this communitarian spirit by how you greet the people and what your uh, your demeanor is. Uh, toward them. So you can't be um, uh, standoffish and formal. That's a bad idea. You have to be sort of folksy uh, and um, inviting. The um, classic uh, probably 70s, 1980s text for learning how to celebrate the Novus Ordo was by a man named Father Robert Havda. And Havda's uh, book uh, described the and gave hints for the ideal sort of personality that the priest who celebrated the, celebrated the Novus Ordo should pro- project, and that idea was strong, loving, and wise. So uh, you were supposed to convey that idea in uh, the greeting. Mm-hmm. One thing, by the way, Justin, that I find very interesting is uh, the recently appointed Archbishop of uh, Chicago, uh, the American equivalent of, of Francis slash Bergoglio. Uh, Supich. Supich, yes. If you look at how he celebrates the Novus Ordo, you see that in the the, the greeting that he gives at the beginning of the Mass and his, his uh, slightly informal tone. So there there you see that that. Uh, uh, new theology at work. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's you know my personal experiences. I mean, I I heard everything from you know what what movie the priest had just you know gone to the theater to see to you know the golf game he just played and how frustrated he was about getting a bogey on a hole. I mean, there's been so many so many stories I've heard about this whole you know opening diatribe given, and I guess it's something to keep in mind while it may seem somewhat innocent and and uh, fraternal to those who are ignorant of the Novus Ordo. This this goes far beyond symbolic effect here. There is a there's a theological nature about this meet and greet. So how how does this set the tone for what those sitting in the Novus Ordo pews are about to see? What what's what's I mean what what is really uh, what's it setting them up for, Father? Well, the idea is this um, human and this horizontal experience, which is the new idea of worship that we are are using this to uh, build 
our uh, community and by uh, animating you with my um, warmth and, and uh, with my comments, this is how really you're going to experience the uh, a true sort of, of, of uh, worship together here. So that's the idea, uh, that uh, the priest is sort of warming you up uh, for, uh, for this type of, uh, in effect, human religious experience. Mm-hmm. Um, the this is interesting because there's a part in this, I guess it's the second or third page to, uh, talking about in you know, the meet and greet theology, where uh, there's a whole idea behind this act being one that quote unquote brings about communion, which you say, Father, devalues the meaning of true sacramental communion. Now I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second and give you you know, the Novus Ordo spiel here on this, and that is, oh come on, mm-hmm. Father. You know, we know we know what Father's talking about. He's not devaluing Holy Communion. How can Father Chikata say that? Well, what happens is what's going on here is the, the typical modernist method, that you take a standard term and you uh, transform the meaning into something else. So normally the, the idea, uh, when you speak of communion in connection with the Mass, the traditional understanding of that is that that is the reception of sacramental communion. And that's the understanding. What the modernists do is they take that word, they put a different meaning on it, and uh, to get across uh, another idea. The communion uh, for a Catholic is the reception of our Lord, body, blood, soul and divinity uh, the modernists hijack that term uh, and try to transform it into a um, uh, uh, turn it to their uses as it were by uh, making this their notion of communion into something that is um, emotional and horizontal they pull this stuff all the time uh, one of the things that I remember from the 60s and 70s was this business about, well, the church is a sacrament. Well, what the heck are you talking about? A sacrament is an outward sign instituted by Christ to give grace. There are seven of them. End of story, if you want to talk about a sacrament. But no, we have to we hijack this idea, uh, and we turn it to our own purposes that now the church is a sacrament. And that can get us away from the idea of uh, the church as an institution in which, um, to to be a member of, we have to uh, 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 submit to the teachings that our Lord expects us to believe, and and the unity of faith. So that goes out the window. So you have a uh, you find this constant uh, manipulation of terms. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, diving into the introductory commentary here, Father, um, as I said, you know, uh, previously, we, all of us have had been, you know, we've we've all experienced Father Chuck's introductory commentary, which, like I said, varies week to week and mood to mood and, you know, how his golf game went the day before. But you provide a quote in the book from a University of Notre Dame study, which I think is, is quite telling. It kind of set me back for a second when I read it because it... it, it it really lays out everything, and I want to read the uh, couple excerpts from that quote. I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's rather lengthy, but it's on page 203 for those who have the book and they want to read along. 
It's a quote, a strong correlation between these opening remarks, obviously talking about the, the, the introductory commentary, between these opening remarks and the general tone of the liturgy that follows. If the opening remarks are omitted, the whole liturgy is likely to be stiff and formal in tone. Ooh, formal in tone. God forbid. That would be terrible, horrible. And then next would be, you know, obviously, if the remarks are given, quote, the ensuing celebration is likely to be marked by continuing good rapport between the priest and people, by a strong horizontal awareness of the assembled people, Unquote. Well, that's very telling, isn't it, Father? I mean, that. I mean, that's a. You know, in a court of law, that would be an admission of guilt, would it not? <laughs> yes. In the uh, and <coughs> you can see how that idea is, is uh, constantly hammered home, and has been hammered home um, uh, since the liturgical changes uh, were instituted after Vatican II. That it is the the uh, idea of this this horizontal uh, awareness. It's not an exaggeration, uh, not an exaggeration at all, because you can see this theme in the writings of the people who created the new mass, and you know you see it in something like this this Notre Dame study. I imagine that now, let's say twenty five years later after that study, that. Um, <coughs> Other studies that have been done would show that uh, the average guy in the uh, suburban church in the United States uh, is quite accustomed to and enjoys this horizontal uh, awareness and thinks mm -hmm. that this is really the ideal for uh, good liturgy, good and uh, inspiring liturgy. So the, 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 there's this, I think, this whole shift that has been uh, affected by the change in uh, the rites of the Novus Ordo. And you see this right from the beginning, right from the initial rites. Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to move into the penitential acts next here, but before we do, I'd like to remind you that you are listening to Work of Human Hands on the Restoration Radio Network, sponsored by Roman Catholic Archive. I am your host, Justin Soder, and I am joined this evening by Father Anthony Chicada, Assistant Pastor of St. Gertrude the Great Catholic Church in Westchester, Ohio, and the author of the book, Work of Human Hands, which we're discussing this evening. And today we've uh, briefly been discussing so far on the show the, the uh, Chapter 8, uh, the Introductory Rites, and sort of giving a, a, a very deep look into uh, the beginning of the new Mass and, and, and how it differs and deviates from that of the traditional Mass. We want to remind you that Work of Human Hands is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved, and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. Permission can usually be very easily obtained by writing to us at mail at truerestoration.org. So moving into the Penitential Act here, Father, uh, could you give us a brief description of what the Penitential Act is? Yes, well, we can uh, draw a parallel between the uh, traditional Mass for those um, who are not, uh, those in the traditional movement who are not really familiar with the, the Novus Ordo, and the um, new rite itself. In the traditional rite of the Mass, the priest um, recited prayers expressing his unworthiness, uh, lamenting his sinfulness, asking for God's forgiveness. And uh, uh, these prayers were directed toward uh, Almighty God and recited alternately with the, with the ministers at the altar. In the, this was, was a, a rite that the uh, clergy performed. 
since the Novus Ordo is a communitarian service, the idea is that, that everyone celebrates, as it were, the rite. Uh, in the Novus Ordo, you have a common penitential rite, where everyone recites the uh, penitential prayers, such as they are, uh, together at uh, at the same time. So that's the the parallel the parallelism. The uh, there are different forms of this naturally uh, given in the Novus Ordo. Uh, there's a, a confiteor-like form, and then there are two other uh, penitential acts that uh, are also included. The third of which allows you uh, to the priest, in effect, to compose his, his own uh, petitions to make as part of the penitential act. So that's kind of, uh, that's the overview of the penitential act. Okay, well, you sort of answered my next question, because I was going to ask how it differs from the old, but that's, that's, that's fine. We can move on here, and uh, we're going to talk about uh, the revised or the new confidior. Now, th this is this is very fascinating, and and this is another one of these parts of the book which happens to me often reading it, where you just sort of sit back and just you know read it a couple of times and let it sink in because you begin to see the the striking departure from Catholicism, which you know obviously Cardinal Ottaviani said, which we have also talked about as well. But you say that on page two hundred six that the new formulas for the confidior, where the priest invites the people to repentance, was really a really a free for all and, and, and given much latitude by the American sacramentary and, and its several formulas. Uh, the Roman legislation uh, said that the celebrant has the ability to adapt the formula to the, quote, actual situation of the community, unquote. Now, that's, that's hilarious to me, the actual situation of the community, as if they're not sinners, you know. But, but, you know and also, I hearken back to my childhood as a kid growing up, you know, we never, ever had the confidier at Mass, ever. And, and, and it wasn't actually until the late 90s that I actually saw Penitential Act, um, uh, Penitential Act A, which is the confidier. So, you know, I, I suppose the actual situation, quote-unquote, of our community here in Florida was that it didn't require us to make a confession of our sins. Um, this is well, this is very know, fascinating. Well, you know, I guess there are older people down there, and uh, they don't have too many sins or something like that. I don't that's, know. Well, that's <laughs> sort of what I thought, too, you know. So it, it's uh, it, so the for geezer our option. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the geezer option. <laughs> the geezer option, exactly. So uh, there were there were three penitential acts that were approved for use, and they were known as penitential acts A, B, and C. And uh, C, not even acknowledging anything to do with sin. Uh, we'll come back to A in just a moment, but let's focus on B and C. Now, <clears throat> B is, is interesting. It's, it's the briefest of the three and consists of only two short psalm verses. And the priest says, have mercy on us, O Lord. And the people say, for we have sinned against you. The priest says, show us your mercy, O Lord. People say, and grant us your salvation. You want to comment on that one, Father, the brief one? Well, there's there's simply not much to it. Um, the, you have have two verses uh, from the Psalms, and it it is not exactly uh, abject in uh, admitting one's sinfulness. But the idea, uh, again, in the New Mass, is to talk too much about personal sin. Uh, is this gets you into undesirable negative theology, so you want to gloss over that as uh, quickly as possible. So if that's one of the parts of the new mass, if uh, you sneeze, uh, you miss it. <laughs> 
Uh, and now Penitential Act C, which, as you rightly say in the book, I mean, I've read it a few times, and I, I totally agree. It's not a penitential right at all. It's, it's a litany with three petitions, but it's, it has nothing to do with penance or sorrow for sin. Uh, the priest says, uh, you were, and this, by the way, is the one I heard the most of. This is the one that I, I, I grew up with. Uh, priest says, you were sent to heal the contrite of heart, Lord have mercy. And the people respond, Lord have mercy. The priest then says, you came to call sinners, Christ have mercy. And the people respond, Christ have mercy. And then the priest finishes with, you sit at the right hand of the Father to intercede for us, Lord have mercy. And the people respond, Lord have mercy. Well, Lord, have mercy indeed. I mean, that has nothing to do with uh, forgiveness of sin or sorrow for sin whatsoever, does it, Father? Uh, no, not at all. And it's it's the idea of simple uh, acclamation, simple petitions like that. And <clears throat> there are a number of options that are given in the Novus Ordo Missal, uh, substitute petitions. And the um, instruction and the rubric, such as the new Mass has any rubrics, uh, allows you to compose your own versions of these petitions. So uh, there's not really very much penance at all going on, uh, on here. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's simply um, uh, simply a series of, of uh, acclamations. And as far as adapting these things to the situation of the local community, I speak from my own uh, experience as an organist and, and liturgical a musician in the Novus Ordo, what you could do is, uh, if you were a parish priest, is you could um, subscribe to a, liturg- a liturgy service, and the liturgy service would give you texts for every Sunday. So someone in a, a an office down in Chicago would make up different petitions for you to put in for penitential rite C. That's how you adapted, I think, to the local community. You also had a, and, and these these were done in the form of um, uh, loose leaf binders, things that you could put in a loose leaf binder. And then, if you were not terribly creative, uh, these people in the liturgy services would also write, uh, let's say, spontaneous comments for you to make um, to introduce the penitential rite. So this is 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 what happened. The rite ended up being deregulated, and the Father Chucks of this universe could talk about whatever they wanted to talk about, uh, use whatever introductions they wanted for the penitential rite, make up whatever um, uh, petitions they wanted for this rite C. Or if you were not as as, uh, creative as as Father Chuck, you could get... uh, these ideas from a liturgy service in uh, J.S. Pollock in Chicago. <laughs> so that's that's how it works. <laughs> yeah. It re- reminds me, and maybe I'm jumping the gun here a little bit, but it reminds me of the um, uh, uh, the intercessory rite, where you know you have uh, you know some some layman that gets up in the pulpit there and says uh, starts pointing out into the congregation people to raise their hands and inject their own little you know, prayer of petition and on and on you know for for world peace and distribution of wealth and you know for John and Sally who are having marital problems and you know it's just you know I guess it's just a free for all here, but. Uh, the thing is that that is regarded as the ideal in the Novus Ordo because that's the spirit working. So now I want to focus on Penitential Act A, which is the Confidior. Okay. Now this is this is very telling. 
Um, and, and for those who may not be aware, who are listening to the show in, in the Novus Ordo, I, I want to read the traditional text of the Confidior, and then I want to read the revised text of the Confidior. Here we go. The traditional text is this, I confess to Almighty God, to Blessed Mary Ever-Virgin, to Blessed Michael the Archangel, to Blessed John the Baptist, to the Holy Apostles Peter and Paul, to all the saints, and to thee, Father, that I have sinned exceedingly in thought, word, and deed, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. Therefore, I beseech Blessed Mary Ever-Virgin, Blessed Michael the Archangel, Blessed John the Baptist, the Holy Apostles Peter and Paul, all the saints, and thee, Father, to pray to the Lord our God for me. Now, here is the revised penitential rite A, also known as the Confidior, in the 1969 text. And this is from the Latin. So those of you who are saying, oh, this is the Americanized version, no, it's not. This is from the Latin. I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have sinned exceedingly in thought, word, deed, and omission, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. Therefore, I beseech Blessed Mary, ever-Virgin, all the angels and saints, and you brothers, to pray to the Lord our God for me. All right, Father, you know, this is uh, very telling, so where do you want to start with this? Oh, there are so many problems with it. First of all, it's it's a common penitential act. It's recited by the priest and the congregation together, so uh, which is um, overthrows what you had before, which was uh, a uh, prayer of preparation. Historically, this was what was called, uh, one of the apologiae, one of the private prayers of uh, the priest that he would say at the altar, protesting his unworthiness, and he would say it with the ministers. So uh, from the point of view of history, um, this uh, phenomenon of a common penitential rite departs from that. Uh, the second point about the common penitential rite is it was truly an innovation in the history of the liturgy in the church, and the first people who came up with the common penitential rite were the, the uh, classic Protestants at the time of, of uh, Luther and Cramner and Calvin and the boys, because uh, this was the idea was that, well, there's nothing special about a priesthood, uh, and that we are all on the same level here in the, the celebration of this act of, of uh, worship, so we recite this common penitential word together. So that is the, the, historical antes- the only historical antecedent for the common penitential rite that they have in the Novus Ordo is the, uh, the um, liturgical practices of the Protestant revolt. And then, yeah. uh, as far as some of the details of, uh, of the text, once you get beyond that, the there are parallels and repetitions in the traditional confidior and be, be, uh, in the first section and in the second section. All of that is gone because of the, the um, idea, uh, the Vatican II idea, that, well, you should uh, uh, purge from the liturgy useless repetitions. So whenever there's a repetition of something, uh, almost always you would have something cut out. Okay, then you have <clears throat> the um, uh, the way the prayer is set up is I confess to Almighty God and to you, my brothers. Okay, well, in the traditional text, you're confessing also to Blessed Mother, to Saint Michael, to John the Baptist, the Holy Apostles, and all the saints. But what we've got here is just God and the bros, God and, and, and the bros. <laughs> uh, so. Uh, so 
you know, we're in the horizontal. It's nice that God goes first, uh, and uh, then come bro- uh, the brothers. After that, you have thought, word, deed, and omission. Well, omission, there's nothing wrong with that. That appears in some medieval confiteors. Through my fault, through my fault, through my grievous fault. Okay, that's in the Latin. Then, therefore, I beseech a Blessed Mary, ever virgin. So here, Blessed Mother appears. But uh, Michael the Archangel, John the Baptist, the Holy Apostles, uh, Peter and Paul, are gone. And this is one of the instances in the Novus Ordo where you see the uh, revisers pull out the uh, specific mentions of names of the saints. They love to do that. Well, because they hated the saints. So that uh, 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 disappears. And you simply have all the angels and saints and you brothers to pray to the Lord our God for me. So what what you have done there is um, with it might seem at first that uh, this is a, these are small things, these are small alterations, but if you understand the theology behind them and what's at work here, uh, it's very radical indeed, and it really shows us where the modernist program uh, was going in the liturgical reform. There's also a significance of posture as well. Uh, you know, those of us who you know, were trapped in the Novus Ordo years ago, I mean, realized that this was done standing. This was this this was said standing, and and obviously those of us who assist at or have even seen a traditional mass know that if, you know by the laity it's done kneeling. The altar servers are kneeling, and the priest mm-hmm. is in a very deep, profound bow. What does this tell us? What's what's the, what's the significance of the posture here, Father? Well, the the idea is is, is a prof- profound bow is uh, that's about as negative theology as you could get for the Novus Ordo, because the, that's, a, that's an expression of humility in the presence of Almighty God and uh, acknowledgement of sinfulness. So that, that is something that uh, naturally has to go. People do not do that in the Novus Ordo. The priest uh, uh, certainly does it, uh, does not do it. The idea is, is that, heaven forbid, it's negative theology, and even worse, it might be harmful to your psychological self-image. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I found it interesting, too, that even uh, um, uh, uh, you know, he, he admitted that this practice deviated from the authentic one of the priest bowing deeply and the people kneeling. Uh, yes, he did, and it's always interesting to find admissions like that, uh, that um, people who actually were involved in the reform um, knew something, that, knew that something was an absolute, uh, something was an ab- absolutely an innovation. It wasn't a restoration at all. Mm-hmm. Could you talk a little bit about Father? Uh, you say in this chapter too. You you, you bring up uh, the uh, uh, the indulgentium prayer and and the suppression of the prayers there. Why, why is this a further testament to the, to the to the denial of sin? Well, the idea is that you get over you get the sin business over with as quickly as possible. That you don't call too much attention to it. <laughs> so the the the, the uh, because it's harmful to the the. Um, common spirit of of the uh, congregation uh, who should have positive self-image and should be uh, building up their enthusiasm at this point. And uh, as, you know, the hippies in the 60s would say that, man, you know, this idea is a real downer. 
So uh, the idea that you, you would multiply prayers that allude to sin and ask for pardon, absolution, and remission of your sins is not, um, uh, is not the positive theology that you want at that point. Mm-hmm. There was also a removal, really, of a beautiful prayer, and, and you know, I follow this in my missal a lot as, as Mass goes along, and, and it's, it, it, it's a prayer said by the priest as he ascends to the altar, and, and this sort of just you know springboards right off the point you just made, Father, about you know sin being so yesteryear, and you know we can't focus on that too much, but the prayer is really beautiful, and, and, and it goes like this. Take away our iniquities, we beseech thee, O Lord, that we may be worthy to enter with pure minds into the Holy of Holies, through Christ our Lord. Amen. Why, Father, did this prayer have to go? I mean, after all, this this wasn't a prayer that the people heard. It, it, it's a prayer that the priest says to himself as he ascends the steps of the altar. What was, what was so harmful about this prayer? Why did that one have to go? Well, first of all, there's that idea that the priest, by reciting these private or these ap- apologiae, these, these quiet prayers, is separating himself from the celebrating congregation. So that is, that's one wrong idea there. Uh, the next uh, wrong idea is, the, is iniquities. Again, it's, it's a question of, of uh, uh, sin and negative theology. Then the idea of pure minds, uh, the opposite of that is impure minds, uh, which is a negative thought, uh, entering into the Holy of Holies, that this, this action that we are performing is completely separate from what we do uh, with uh, the, the, uh, the rest of our life. It's, it's, it, it is something that is, is holy and that belongs to Almighty God. So on just about every count that is the type of of prayer the negative type of prayer that you do not want in the Novus Ordo that that it it spoils this idea of um, meeting and greeting and saying good morning to Father Chuck there was another prayer that was excised and and that was the prayer the priest says when he kisses the altar and of course you could probably say the same thing father for this prayer as well and and why it had to go we beseech thee o lord by the merits of the saints whose relics are here and of all the saints that thou wouldst vouchsafe to forgive me all of my sins amen well more sin business, well, I, right? I mean first of all sins okay it's got to go out for that reason but then the uh, there are several other ideas in there First of all, there's the intercession of the saints. You can't have too much of that because that draws you to um, draws your mind to think about the supernatural order and the saints in heaven. So that has to go. The uh, other idea that has to go is relics because in the Novus Ordo rules for the consecration or for setting up of an altar, that relics are no longer required. So uh, there's that particular detail. And then the merits of the saints, that's anti-ecumenical because the uh, Protestants believe that human nature is so corrupt that you can't merit anything. And indeed, one of the things that we'll talk about in the... um, in our discussion of the collects of the new mass is how consistently in the collects of the new mass the notion of the merits of the saints was it disappeared 
it disappeared. So uh, again, on just about every point, if if you um, uh, extract those different points from uh, this prayer, all you end up with is Lord and Amen. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, I think this would be a point to ask you. I was going to ask you later down the road, Father. Uh, can you give us just a sort of a brief sketch as to how the relics and the reliquaries on the altar disappeared from the Novus Ordo table and, and why that happened? Well, the idea is that anything that diverts attention from the celebrating assembly uh, has to go. So what you have to concentrate on is just this action of the celebrating assembly. So as far as what is uh, placed in uh, the altar, which is where the um, uh, relics were placed when the altar was consecrated, that this doesn't add anything to the um, uh, experience, as it were, of the of the celebrating assembly. The fact that you have the relics of two martyrs and maybe a confessor in the altar, uh, this adds nothing to them. Also, the other problem, it's the supernatural order again, it's heaven, uh, etc., and we're concerned with other things. We're concerned with horizontal things here. So mm -hmm. that's as far as relics in the altar. The idea of putting reliquaries on the altar on the big feast days that uh, are incensed, that is absolutely beyond the beyond. Uh, it is it, it, because it draws attention to all of these um, uh, uh, uncomfortable, the, the 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 all of the uncomfortable theological values for the, for the modern world that the saints represent. And here you're incensing their relics. So uh, there's no way that you're going to allow something like that to uh, uh, sit on the uh, uh, table of the great assembly supper. Mm -hmm, really, uh, the next part here that I want to move into is, um, and of course, just for our listeners, we are giving the main the main meat of the chapter. But there's a lot of really excellent reference material in this chapter, with of course typical Father Chicada citations, citations, citations in here for for your general research if you're so inclined. Is this idea of a devil-free asparagus um, and really a kind of a study on uh, the the new holy water in general? Um, let's first start with the Asperges, Father. For our listeners who may not be aware what that is, can you explain what that is? And then maybe afterwards, give us a difference between the new Asperges and the traditional Asperges in Mass. The, uh, in the traditional Mass, uh, for High Mass on Sunday, or the principal Mass, you have a rite that's called the Asperges. And uh, that rite uh, consists of the, the singing of an uh, antiphon and a psalm, and the blessing of the congregation with holy water that has been blessed before the Mass, uh, before the High Mass by, uh, by the priest. And there's a, uh, a series of lengthy prayers uh, consisting of uh, an um, exorcism of uh, the blessed salt uh, and the blessing of salt, an exorcism of the water, the blessing of water, uh, then the uh, mixing of the salt with the water, and uh, the recital of the final prayer of blessing before. So that's what the blessing of holy water itself uh, 
consists of. And then uh, at the beginning of the high mass, after the uh, priest and ministers process into the church, he intones the antiphon asparagus and proceeds to sprinkle the altar and sprinkle the ministers, uh, those in the sanctuary and the members of the congregation with the holy water. So that is the the uh, the rite of uh, the blessing and uh, sprinkling with holy water that you find in the uh, traditional mass. So uh, that's what you had there. In the Novus Ordo, naturally, this was um, uh, all changed and all moved around. The asparagus is seen as a um, replacement for the uh, penitential rite. The way it goes is, is that the celebrant greets the people as usual, and then he can make spontaneous comments okay, about the right that you know we're going to um, uh, now bless you with holy water. And this reminds me that when I was playing golf yesterday, the fairways were not very well watered, and uh, you know this. Uh, therefore, we should uh, water ourselves spiritually. Okay, so that he does something spontaneous like that, maybe, and. He sprinkles the water on the congregation, and then at the end he sends a uh, little prayer and goes to the glory of the Mass or uh, to the collect. Now, the um, uh, first of all, uh, one thing to note is that for the blessing, he, he uh, blesses the water, he can bless the water in front of the congregation, but the idea of the exorcisms, of course, are gone. Uh, because that is the, uh, again, that's uh, uh, your negative theology is gone. And then we're in the traditional rite for, for uh, blessing holy water. You had different allusions to the uh, uh, deceptions of the devil, to his assaults, um, uh, to, to the poison of the devil, uh, to Christ's judgment of the world by fire, all of this, this, uh, uh, language uh, to do with these different themes, all of that is, of course, is is gone. Uh, instead, the, the closest you get is one of the prayers mentions the uh, snares of the enemy, but uh, when it was translated into English initially, they didn't even mention that. It, it ended up as the, the power of evil. So uh, you had the uh, revisers doing a thorough job in cutting all of these uh, unpopular supernatural ideas out of the asparagus rite and basically just leaving you with the um, uh, the sprinkling part of it. So it's, it's quite a, um, uh, they did quite a job on it. It doesn't say much for their belief in the devil, does it? I mean, you, you, certainly, you certainly wouldn't be convinced that they believe he exists by, by the removal of those prayers. Uh, no, certainly not. And you see that... Uh, in what they did to the different um, mentions of the devil in other parts of uh, the Mass as well. Mm -hmm. so they they uh, were not big on the idea of the existence of the devil. I'd like to remind you, listeners, that you are listening to Work of Human Hands on the Restoration Radio Network, sponsored by Roman Catholic Archive. I am Justin Soder, your host, and I'm joined by Father Anthony Ciccata, and today we've been discussing Chapter 8 of Father's book, uh, Work of Human Hands. The ch chapter title is uh, Introductory Rites, and we've been discussing a lot of the 
the the case by case side by side study of the the new masses changes as well uh, compared to the traditional rite of mass and how the prayers and the theology are differing. We want to remind you that Work of Human Hands is a production of the Restoration Radio Network. All rights are reserved and any duplication without explicit written permission is forbidden. Permission can usually be very easily obtained by writing to us at mail at truerestoration.org. So, Father, let's move into the Kyrie. Um, can you explain uh, really the Kyrie and its history, which uh, in your book said dates back to A.D. 390, um, and, and I, I trust your source on that. I had heard a little bit earlier, but I, I, you know, I trust the source that you gave on that, and, and really how this became part of the Mass. Yes, well, the uh, early documentation, one of the difficulties in the history of the liturgy is uh, getting documents from early points in in uh, the history of the church to ascertain the origin of of uh, different rites what um, according to my reading it was uh, it was about 390 where this uh, actually uh, appeared in the uh, appeared in the roman rite curiae was curiae lace on the the history of it of the acclamation is that it was something that was uh, said to the emperor uh, that the emperor was the Kyrios, he was, he was the great lord. And you find in uh, the history of the church, and you find actually in sacred scripture, the application of that title lord to uh, our blessed lord and savior Jesus Christ, um, right from the beginning as a recognition of his uh, divinity. So it's a, a twofold plea. It's an, um, uh, it is a, a plea f- invoking the mercy of uh, the Lord, the mercy of, of God uh, upon us, and it is uh, also an acclamation of His divinity and of His His, his rights over us. So uh, it was used as a. Uh, um, general petition uh, to our blessed Lord, and it was also tied in with uh, specific petitions where uh, we were asking uh, God for uh, particulars, uh, particular favors that we wanted. And so you, it's, it's the, the, the great, um, uh, this, this uh, great acclamation that is so rooted in the history of the Christian religion. So it, it became, a, uh, became a part of uh, the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass fairly early on. Wanted to give you an opportunity, Father. Another part of your your chapter here that I I smiled at, and uh, could only think of you telling the story is uh, <laughs> Concilium's difficulty in retouching Pope Galatius's prayer as penitent. Oh acts yes, the, that's right. Yeah. Yes, I, I'd nearly forgotten about that. That's that's a but uh, one of the things that you have to um, uh, understand is constantly the Concilium was tell, telling us. Um, uh, that well, we're restoring this from the ancient church. We're restoring that from the ancient church. That don't complain about it. It's nothing that's that's uh, r- really new. So this this is a theme that they sounded time and time again. So um, one of the things that occurred to me is is, is I found uh, from the the prayer of Pope Gelasius, 
uh, his use of the Kyrie uh, in connection with the following petitions, which I suggested that perhaps the um, Concilium might have considered, you know, restoring into the uh, the Novus Ordo Mass. So this is one of the petitions that they could put they could have put in Penitential Act C. Um, for, the, for those deceived by the lying of the Jews, or by heretical depravity, or with pagan superstition, we beseech the Lord of Truth, Lord have mercy, Kyrie eleison. But uh, I, <laughs> I would have some difficulty imagining Father Chuck offering that particular um, uh, petition, you know, the morning of the church in Rochester. Yeah, that might be a tall order. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, something else in the chapter, Father, uh, the, the, that you mention is the ninefold curiae in response to the Arian heresy. And now, before we talk about the difference in the ninefold curiae versus the sixfold in the New Rite, what what is this ninefold curiae which you speak of, Father? So the, by ninefold Kyrie, we mean at the traditional Mass, the priest says, uh, Kyrie eleison, Kyrie eleison, Kyrie eleison, and then Christe eleison, Christe eleison, Christe eleison, Kyrie eleison, Kyrie eleison, Kyrie eleison. So you have nine petitions in the Kyrie. And that was, uh, according to your book, that was to uh, give, um, give deference to uh, the Blessed Trinity. Is that correct, Father? Yes, that's exactly, uh, that's exactly it. And you had a number of elements in the Mass were uh, introduced at, at, um, in, uh, early on in the history of the Mass to combat the Arian heresy. Now, the, the heresy of the Arians, of course, denied that Christ uh, really was the Son of God. So a lot of the uh, Trinitarian acclamations in the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass were put there to reaffirm this belief. For instance, the use of the Gloria Patri during the introit, uh, that that is one of the elements in the Mass that uh, was put there to reaffirm uh, faith in uh, the divinity of Christ and in the Blessed Trinity. And so, too, you have the uh, Kyrie here, these ninefold petitions, uh, the idea is, is uh, three and the Most Blessed Trinity. So that's why that's why it was uh, uh, put in there. Jungmann, by the way, uh, objected uh, very much. He he thought that the elements that the Church had um, put in to reaffirm uh, belief in the Blessed Trinity against the Arians, he thought that was the beginning of the, the decline of the pure Roman liturgy. So that's, that's actually part of, of Jungmann's uh, corruption theory, that the liturgy started to become corrupt because the Church uh, wanted to affirm uh, Catholic faith against the heresies of the Arians. What does the Kyrie look like in the New Rite, Father? Well, when you have it, when you have the Kyrie, um, you, it's, it's simply, Lord have mercy on us, Lord have mercy on us, Christ have mercy on us, Christ have mercy on us, Lord have mercy on us, Christ, or Lord have mercy on us. So it's, you simply say the petition six times, six times rather than uh, nine times. And uh, from a liturgical point of view, it doesn't really make any sense to do that. Uh, if you look at the history and why the petition was, was uh, put in the way it was. 
I, I find it interesting that you know this is this is one of these spots in the in the revisions of the mass where you say, wait a second, you know this wasn't by accident. I mean, what's wrong with the the existing curiae? Why would they change that? I mean, that, and, and when you look at the the beauty and the simplicity of the curiae, you say, okay, it was fine as was. What's wrong with saying you know uh, you know three more? And, and in fact. Um, you speak about this, this. This implicitly denies the Blessed Trinity. Can you can you kind of sum that up? Well, the it, it's another. It's one of the many Trinitarian references, uh, Trinitarian allusions that uh, existed in the traditional Mass that simply were uh, removed from uh, the Novus Ordo. So you mm-hmm. you had the, for instance, the Glory Patri. The Introit is. Um, uh, removed the prayer Sushipe Sancta Trinitas. That uh, that prayer is removed from the uh, from the end of the offertory. So you have have a number of um, points like this, where the creators of the Novus Ordo removed uh, an explicitly Trinitarian reference. It used to be that uh, also on, on regular Sundays, green Sundays of the church year, you recited all the time the, the preface of uh, the Most Blessed Trinity. But they abolished that as well, that you only do that uh, on a Trinity Sunday. So mm-hmm. the, the, this, this uh, uh, diminution uh, of uh, references to the, uh, to the Blessed Trinity. Now, the Gloria, when I came to that part of the chapter, Father, it, it, it seemed as if the Gloria itself pretty much remained intact, except really what was what was stripped down was its frequency of usage in the new rite of Mass. Is that correct? Am I, am I reading that correctly, or did I miss something there? Yeah, no, that's absolutely correct. In the okay. uh, traditional Mass, you would have the Gloria... The Gloria would be recited on uh, Sundays outside of Advent and Lent, and that's uh, how it is in the Novus Ordo. It's recited on uh, Sundays outside of uh, Advent and Lent. Then, whenever you had a saint's feast in the traditional Missal, you had the Gloria, uh, because the notion being that uh, the saint is, is in the glory of heaven, and we chant a song to... Uh, honor that, to honor that fact. In the Novus Ordo, you have to, um, uh, the glorious only uh, recited or sung on Sundays outside of Advent and Lent. And when you have a, uh, what's called a solemnity, the very highest ranking feasts in the Novus Ordo calendar, which there aren't many, and then uh, on uh, the second rank of feasts in the Novus Ordo calendar, uh, for instance, a, a feast of an apostle would get a Gloria. But apart from that, you don't get it. You don't get a Gloria. Uh, so that is another uh, diminution, as it were, of the veneration of the saints, because uh, a saint, um, uh, the traditional liturgy always honored a saint uh, with the recitation or the chanting of the Gloria. So there's another diminution and another shortening that you find. So while the Gloria may not have completely been tinkered with in its in, in its substance, the Collect, however, has. And and uh, I'd like to 
you know, move into this and let you give a, sort of an overview of, of what the collect is, Father, and when it is used in the traditional Mass, and then we'll talk about some of the changes here and give some illustrations from this chapter. The uh, collect is the uh, first, what you could call the prayer of the day, uh, that uh, in, in both the traditional Mass and uh, the Novus Ordo. The idea of it is it's supposed to sum up, collect the principal points of the feast that one is celebrating. If it's, say, Lent, it's different ideas of, of uh, penance. Uh, if it's the Feast of Our Lady, the different uh, virtues of Our Lady, uh, the Apostles, uh, the, um, uh, the the glory of the Apostles, they're, they're spreading the Catholic faith, and so on. So that is the... the Collect, um, uh, and it's so it's 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 uh, the principal feast day prayer. Now this comes at the um, uh, this comes uh, after the Kyrie and, and the Gloria uh, in the uh, Novus Ordo and in the traditional Mass uh, as well. And these are written in a um, uh, original collects are written in a very terse and very concentrated uh, style. So that's that's the collect of the mass, and and we can, uh, I believe, in another show we'll we'll be looking at some of the uh, substantive substantive changes as regards the teachings of the collect uh, or the doctrines that are found in the new collects. But uh, that I think will be a, a, another issue. Well, I want to give our listeners a little excerpt from the book here, Father, on page 214, when you, uh, the, the bolded area where you say practices in America. And, of course, we have to admit, in, even though we have a lot of foreign listeners, America really was a petri dish of experimentation for all of these changes here. And you say this, and we're going to give, we're going to give the listeners a little example here. Uh, it says, the American sacramentary provided some optional extras for the priest after the let us pray. First, it allowed him to employ the expanded alternative invitatory from the American Missal. To get the flavor of this, we will look at the approved translations of the Collect for Easter. Let us pray that the risen Christ will raise us up and renew our lives. And here the congregation pauses for silent prayer. God our Father, by raising Christ your Son, you conquer the power of death and open for us the way to eternal life. Let our celebration today raise us up and renew our lives. By the Spirit that is within us, grant this through... Dot, dot, dot. And Father says, note the repetition. The celebrant first asks the people to pray that Christ raise us up and renew our lives. There is a pause for prayer. And then, sure enough, the priest says a collect which prays that the celebration today raises up and renew our lives. This is the didactic absurdity which you talk about, Father, and, and I, I, I like this, too, when you said that uh, the method presumed that the congregation would possess an uncommonly high reserve of stupidity. How many times I've seen something like that as, as, as a, a church musician, so what, uh, I'm not sure if the listeners picked that up, but the... Um, uh, collect is, is recited in the vernacular, and the principal petition of the official collect is that uh, let our celebration today raise us up and renew our lives. But that's not enough for the uh, uh, stupidity of the Novus Ordo. That, no, the priest has to say before he says that, uh, that let us pray that the risen Christ will raise us up and renew our lives. So you're saying the same thing twice. 
and the uh, effect of that is uh, is really idiotic. And I remember as a church musician seeing that that <clears throat> time and time again in the Novus Ordo. That uh, one church I was an uh, organist at, uh, St. Stephen's on Howell Avenue in Milwaukee, the uh, pastor had not yet hired lay commentators to um, uh, make comments and interjections and, and uh, explanations during the course of the Mass. So the assistant was um, uh, obliged to read the commentaries from a different book. So you would get something um, uh, in effect like this, that uh, the assistant playing the part of the commentator would uh, uh, say, um, now uh, let us listen as uh, Father Race uh, blesses the Easter water in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost. And then Father Race would say into his microphone, uh, uh, you know, let us pray, I bless this Easter water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And <laughs> you're, you're wondering, is there an echo in here or what's going on? Yeah, the redundant uh, school of redundancy. <laughs> yeah, it's the school of redundancy, and it's the idea of the mass as a classroom, and that you uh, have to engage in all of these these classroom uh, type tricks to cram these ideas into people's heads, and it is a uh, the um, uh, ideas that it turns the liturgy really into uh, almost an absurdity because of the. Uh, because you're, you're you're bringing it to this level, but you're always like uh, the giant voice is always shoving some idea into your head, and uh, that's one of the characteristics of the uh, characteristics of the Novus Ordo. To round out this chapter, Father, you give a a, um, a bit of a summary towards the end about the general uh, desacralizing effects of the changes in the introductory rites, and um, I think this is a really really good sum up when when you talked about the changes of the ritual actions, which was essentially the reduction of priestly gestures to practically zilch, and this fundamental shift to a crypto Lutheran and modernist assembly theology. I, I don't think we need to emphasize why this is a modernist assembly theology. We've we've spent a show talking about it last time, and and we've spent a considerable uh, amount of time referencing it tonight. Talk about the crypto Lutheran aspect of that, Father. Why do you say that? Well, it's crypto-Lutheran because the idea is that, that it's the common penitential rite, and that this is essentially a, um, uh, essentially a, a Protestant, Reformation Protestant idea. So it's, it's, it's crypto-Lutheran, but it's, it's Lutheran without the good music, generally. So <laughs> that's kind of what you have. Mm-hmm. Hey, I think too that, that um, anyone who has had you know, the displeasure of seeing uh, the Novus Ordo, I think anyone who has had the displeasure of seeing the Novus Ordo, uh, and then has the, the privilege of seeing a traditional mass, it it will jump out at them the the uh, the total absence in the Novus Ordo of these priestly gestures that you're talking about. So I think that's something that maybe to our Novus Ordo listeners just. Do an experiment for yourself and see this, and, and and see the richness of the traditional liturgy versus this vacuous feeling and this vacuous uh, nature of the Novus Ordo, and and you'll see what Father's talking about here. Uh, Father, would you say that these rituals had to go because they just don't fit into the horizontal dimension, or was there something deep 
deeper than that. Well, they don't fit into the horizontal dimension uh, of uh, the Novus Ordo. They emphasize too much the uh, notion of the priesthood. And they emphasize the idea of the, the, the priest as, as really functioning and doing something uh, special when the Mass is uh, celebrated and he's doing what no one else is doing. That idea is uh, anathema to the modernist theology of assembly and to their, their notion of the priest as animator presider. So these gestures, because they reflected and embodied this whole theology of the priesthood and, and this whole different understanding of what goes on at the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, they had to go. Mm-hmm. The next part is this idea of, or this practice of chatter in church. Now, I can I can speak from personal experience here, as I'm I'm sure you can as well, Father. Of course, in the 80s, I I, I think it was it, it was reaching it was sort of reaching a crescendo, and I mean now I can't even imagine what it is. But this is the most irritating aspect of the experience of a new mass. It's nonstop chatter uh, before, frankly, during and even afterwards. It's just this incessant barrage of noise, which makes it impossible, impossible for concentration, focus, and prayer. Your father, you describe your experience as mere anecdotal evidence that it, that in middle-class suburban parishes that there's a there's a practice for those present to engage in chit-chat and you know the you know oh how's the wife and kids before mass and and I can certainly attest to that evidence I've seen it uh, and this kind of points back to the didactic which you were talking about and the redundancy is that all these people just spent 20 minutes before Mass began talking about how the wife and kids are doing and how Junior's grades are. And then when Mass begins, Father Bob's introductory rites, where he invites the congregation to greet everyone around them before the whole shebang gets underway. And you say, well, wait a second. We just spent the last 15 minutes doing that, and now it's going to be formalized by his invitation. And again, it, it, this, is, this is stupid, it's silly, it's redundant, and completely out of place. Yeah, there's a whole lot of greeting going on. The attitude of, of the chatter in church is something that uh, I found quite, quite striking and really offensive. Uh, I had been, you know, I, I had uh, seen uh, a little bit of this when I was involved in, in uh, church music in the mid-70s. But when I finally... Uh, as, as part of writing this book, went uh, to sample uh, the Novus Ordo in, in these different churches is, is really shocking and, and dissatisfying that uh, people in, in church are not, uh, do not conduct themselves anymore as if they are in a sacred place and they're there to worship Almighty God. Rather, they, they simply carry on conversations. And I've uh, heard that this is uh, pervasive in suburban churches in the United States, but it, it reflects the general theology behind the new mass and the general concept of, of worship of this, this building of community. So you build it up not only during the uh, celebration of the Novus Ordo, but you build it up before as well. And it all slides into a... Um, into uh, back into the natural order and in uh, something that's really devoid of the supernatural and that's all horizontal and concentrated on our fellow man and that is a that's a very um, that is a very bad 
uh, situation to be in if, if people's understanding of, of, of uh, worship and of the Mass is descended to that. So, Father, let's go ahead and close out the show here. I think we've given listeners a lot of information. What would you like listeners to take home from this chapter the most? The idea that in a very short uh, section of the Novus Ordo, the introductory rites, which actually do not take very long, that we see uh, expressed so many of the, the major errors that are behind the whole liturgical revolution. And it, it's, it's when you look closely at it, all of this is, is uh, very striking, this, this idea of the uh, masses as a horizontal exercise, uh, you you have have that this uh, uh, notion of a uh, separation between liturgical tradition and what you have in the Novus Ordo in the creation of the, this this Protestant penitential rite, the removal of uh, the devotion to the saints, uh, the removal of of negative uh, ideas uh, from. Uh, from divine worship, putting everything on uh, a human level, making it a human experience. You find in, in just a few uh, short minutes in the Novus Ordo, in the, the beginning part of the rite, you find uh, all of these these uh, errors and all of these these faults embodied. And I think that that is the um, uh, that that's the lesson here. Well, Father, I want to give you a chance to tell us uh, what's what's new at St. Gertrude's and, and uh, SGG Resources since we last talked. I'd like to know, what's uh, is there anything new happening? Is, you know, school is oh, we now, have I'm calendars. Sure. Please buy oh, our calendars. calendars. Yes, uh, so we, we started advertising those recently. Our theme is the Holy Face. We have some uh, magnificent depictions of uh, the Holy Face and a prayer for each month that ties in the devotion to our Lord's holy face with uh, some particular saint of uh, saint of the month. So it's it's uh, a very nicely done calendar as usual. It follows the uh, pre-Bugnini uh, liturgical calendar. Uh, so we uh, observe that. We also have a lot of um, additional optional feasts, uh, devotional feasts that are noted on the calendar, and that's something that that is uh, very popular all the time with the people who uh, order the calendar. So there's, there's that we have on the um, site SGG Resources. Uh, soon on my uh, YouTube site, I will be uh, posting a, uh, another, the next film installment uh, from Work of Human Hands uh, on the new Eucharistic prayers. Those are the, the prayers in the Novus Ordo that replaced the canon of the Mass. And in fact, I was just putting the finishing touches on uh, that uh, uh, film today. It'll be actually about 30 minutes long, and it's a discussion of, of the theology of the new Eucharistic prayers. And in, in a nutshell, uh, the uh, different prayers, you, you'll hear how the different prayers that were introduced in the 1960s, the, the uh, three new Eucharistic prayers, how uh, really from a point of view of history, how fraudulent they are. Uh, they were presented as a return to uh, naturally early Christian tradition, but were not. And then also a discussion of the 
prayers that were introduced, the Eucharistic prayers that were introduced in 1974 by, by Paul VI, um, these have not really been given in that much of an examination by traditionalists as they should be. But basically what we see in these is what I call the, the uh, hippie theology of the 60s and 70s. So there's a, a discussion of that, and that's uh, something that um, you, you can uh, look forward to uh, as well. If you're uh, on my email list, you'll get a notice of that. Or if you're on Twitter, on my Twitter list, you'll uh, get a notice of that as well. And, of course, we encourage you to support our apostolate here at St. Gertrude the Great uh, by uh, contributing via uh, sggresources.org, sggresources.org, and you can also assist at the Mass on Sundays and Holy Days and our daily school Masses uh, through the uh, webcam uh, that we broadcast on SGG Resources. Well, as Father just said, we received a lot of emails from people saying, well, I, you know, I can't get to a Mass, what do I do? Well, Father just answered it for you. You can you can assist at Mass by watching on the webcam. I've done that myself from time to time. It's, it's a wonderful service that, that you know, they, they provide. It's a charity, really, for those who are shut-ins or sick or, can't, or, or live at a great distance from the Mass. And, and of course, it's all HD quality. It's, it's very nice. And, Father, that's broadcast every day, is it not? During the school year, we, we broadcast our uh, school Masses at 11.20 every day. Um, okay. So it's it's um, uh, during the school year you can get that you can also get a sermon, a kid sermon which is good if if you're doing homeschooling. On Friday evenings we always uh, even on non-school days broadcast our Friday evening services. We broadcast our uh, Saturday morning uh, masses, the two Saturday morning masses, and of course all of the the masses on Sundays and holy days. Be sure to support the Apostolate of, of St. Gertrude's, and, and of course, you can send Father Mass donations, uh, you know, for Mass stipends to be said. We need to support our clergy. So, Father, thanks for your time again this evening. Uh, appreciate you continuing to do this series with us, and we will see you next month to round out the season here and, uh, for uh, Chapter 9. Well, thank you all, and God bless you. God bless. All of us here at the Restoration Radio Network would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you would please consider sending a note of thanks to the clergy who helped make our network worthwhile. Remember that above and beyond material contributions, the most important contribution or donation you can make to our work here is prayer. Please think of offering a Mass, a Rosary, or even a simple Ave for our work the next time you pray. For the Restoration, I am Justin Soder, and may God bless you. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.